a good group for a Sunday night. Appreciate everybody coming back out. Tonight I'm going to look at, uh, if you picked up a, an outline, you're probably looking at this sermon and going, what is this all about? But I'm going to look at something called peak performance. It does have to do with kind of tying back to something that we were looking at last year in one of the quarters, the idea of finding my purpose or fulfilling my purpose in my work. Uh, we are going to look at that, but I'm going to try to look at the idea of doing our secular work, our secular labor, and that in relation to at least some weaknesses and so forth, and all of that will probably become evident as I get uh, into the, to the sermon. If we were to define peak performance, the idea of peak performance is, is a state in which a person, or a machine even, but I'm going to use it as a person. So a state in which a person operates at the maximum of his or her ability. Sometimes machines are purchased on the basis of how many they can turn out per second, per minute, per hour, etc. And when an individual is considered, especially for a job or for a work or whatever, it is the idea at what level can they perform. A lot of times compensation, money, salary, etc. follows suit. But it's the idea at peak performance is that ideal state that a person reaches in which they operate at the maximum of their ability. Now, sometimes when you're talking about human beings, you can further characterize either operating at peak performance or the lack of peak performance by certain subjective things like confidence. A person operates at peak performance the more confident they are. Uh, effortlessness. We might say that a person operates at peak performance, does the job about as perfectly as it can be done when it seems like there's no effort that is just natural to the individual. They're not really having to struggle with it, that kind of thing. Um, other things figure and factor into that, e even concentration. There is a real problem, and I'm not going to get sidetracked, but I was listening to a seminar oh, a couple of weeks ago about someone talking about the problem with hirees, new hirees, and just their concentration. It wasn't so much that the individuals could not do the job, it's just that they couldn't, their attention couldn't be held. They couldn't concentrate on the job at hand for long enough to do the job and certainly to operate at anywhere close to peak performance. So I want to talk about some of those things tonight. Not to get deep off into a psychological study, we're not going to do that, but we're going to look at it from a spiritual standpoint. So let's go back and echo what we were saying last year without revisiting uh, all of that. But remember, we talked about the call to work. God has given man the fundamental responsibility to work. We are supposed to be people who work. And if you remember, we went back to the book of Genesis and we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and then other passages as well in which God wants us to work, commands us to work. He put people in the Garden of Eden. It was paradise. And even in paradise, there was supposed to be work done. We're given a lot of choice about our work, and, and especially in countries like this, and we're thankful to God for that. It's, it, it's a basic freedom we cherish, we value. But if we don't take advantage of those freedoms, then we may very well lose them. I want to start off, though, by suggesting to you that if we're looking at this whole idea of I want to perform at peak level, I want to have peak performance in my job, etc., I want to suggest that work is valuable for several reasons, and it does us well, I think, sometimes in thanking God for the jobs we have, the labor we have, the ability we have, etc. 
Uh, it does us want to remind ourselves of what the point of work is. So I'm going to suggest several things, maybe not everything, but very quickly let me suggest several things I think the Bible teaches. I believe work is valuable, number one, because it allows us to use, in a positive way, our minds and our bodies, to use them as God intended. Again, going back to those early chapters in Genesis, God intended us to work. God describes even the creation of the world as his work. It's an honorable thing. It's a good thing. We might look at the old adage and quote the idea of an idle mind is the devil's workshop. My grandmother used to quote that to me quite a bit, you know. But an idle mind is the devil's workshop. But you know it's true. I mean, if we have leisure time on our hands, the more leisure time we have, the more trouble we can get into. That doesn't mean we will, not everybody, but certainly as a general rule, we get into trouble. So it is a good thing to work. It allows us to use our minds and use our bodies like God wanted us to use them. Number two, it allows us to change, especially in a land like this with the freedoms and opportunities we have, it allows us to change our circumstances. We've been blessed in this nation. I, I cherish that. I would not want someone coming along and telling me, and, and even if it's true, Michael, you are not that good a preacher, but you could do a better job over here in this area. This is what you do. I would not want someone doing that. I like having choice. I like having the freedom to choose, and I, I, I cherish that, and I hope we always have that. But given that, it allows us to change our circumstances. If you don't like where you are in life, if you don't like your status, your economic level, etc., etc., you have choice. It's a blessing from God, and you should take advantage of it. You should be able to change your circumstances. We can, as we call it, better ourselves. We can better ourselves economically. In other words, we can do whatever, we can get whatever training it takes and do a job you know, that we're capable of doing to make more money. I don't have to settle for. I, I was listening to the former CEO of McDonald's the other day, and he was talking about, you know, this whole glorified debate over minimum wage and on and on and on. And he was talking about the fact that he had started by flipping hamburgers at less than minimum wage when he started all those years ago. And he had risen 35 years later to be the CEO of the company. In other words, here's an individual that was saying, you don't like where you are, change it. You have that opportunity. You can change it. And so, given that freedom, work, the ability to work and work hard, allows us the opportunity to better ourselves economically, emotionally. You know, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. I believe that, but an idle mind is also a killer. I mean, the more idle time you have, the less busy you are, the less you do something, the more your emotions suffer for that. Maybe all of us have been there. I know some of us have. And, and it just drains you emotionally to do nothing. It is far more taxing than getting tired from, I mean, getting as, you know, the old phrase goes, good and tired. You know, it's good to get good and tired. Well, it really is. But it allows you to do that. It is one way. And if you turn over to Matthew chapter 6, and someone asked me about this, you know, the promise by Jesus in Matthew 6. And if you start reading there in verse 25, you'll know the passage immediately. Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. 
uh, you know, the, the, the lilies of the field, they don't toil, they don't spin, etc. You know, and they're arrayed in glory, and the birds of the air are fed by God, and all of that. And someone said, you know, when you look at that passage, what it seems like it is saying is that if you are a Christian, then God is just going to give you these things. It's not saying you have to work for them. And I said to this person, look at verse 33 again. Verse 33 says, if you seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Part of His righteousness is, I go to work. And God is saying to me, Michael, if you will go to work, if you will do what you're supposed to do and obey my, you know, original commandments from the Garden of Eden on, go to work, then I will bless you with the needs in your life. You will not go without the basic necessities of life. It is one way that God blesses us with those things He promises. But where in that passage does God say, do nothing, and I give you these things? Um, That's not what God is teaching. A third thing that I think work is valuable for, at least, is it allows us, and it really is a blessing, it allows us the ability to help other people. If you go over to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, work that he may have, and of course he goes on to say with your hands that which is good, but that he may have to give to those who are in need. Work is valuable. Work allows me, God blesses me with the things I need, and God gives me the the ability to help other people. And that's a blessing. It is a good thing. Now, we're not talking about people that just, you know, don't want to work themselves. We're not talking about We're talking about people that are in need. We're talking about, read with me James 2, and I want to look at this passage. In James chapter 2, we're talking a lot about, I'm talking a lot about James anyway this month, uh, have been, and last month. But uh, in the book of James, in chapter 2, notice as he says down in verse 14. Let's just read this. We know this passage. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and he has not works? Can faith save him? Now, it's a rhetorical question to say, no, without works it cannot. Because if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, I know this. He's destitute. This is not a person that just won't work. This is a person perhaps who can't, or a person that is destitute. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you were to say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, or as I like to paraphrase it, you know, you pat them on the back and say, Hope everything works out for you. That is not what God is teaching. No, notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does that profit? What good is it to say you hope it works out for somebody else, but you don't help? God gives us the ability through our work to help people in need, true need. And he goes on to say here, even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Oh, man may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe there's one God. You do great. You know, it's if to say, that's great. The devils believe too, and they tremble. But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And then he quotes Abraham here, or he looks at the example of Abraham, who was called the friend of God. He had faith. But Abraham also was willing to do. Work allows you the ability to do that. If you have worked and you've worked hard and you have the money to take care of yourself, then chances are great, and I believe are, it is the case, when someone is truly in need, you have the ability to help them. And that's a good thing. 
And finally, another value, and I'll only cite four here, but a final value that I see in work is that it allows us to utilize our talents and our abilities. And if you remember when we were looking at that last year, we talked about the difference in talents and abilities, and there is a, a difference. One is the idea of being born with a talent. You have an ability, you're born with it. I mean, if you're an athlete and, you know, you can run well and all of that kind of thing, or you grow to be seven feet tall, I ain't going to get there. You know what I mean? But people are born with that. But then there are abilities, and those are the things that you acquire. You have some aptitude, but you work hard. Maybe you go to school, and you put in all those long, grueling hours, you know, staying up all night when you'd rather be sleeping and studying, and all of that that you go through, but you gain ability. And you gain the ability to go out and get a job, or to go out and work for yourself, but you gain ability is the point. It allows us to use our talents and abilities. And thankfully, we live in a place that says, hey, reach down inside you and find out what abilities you have and go for it. Do something that you want to do with your life. And maybe even like Wes and I both, you know, we may have started out doing something else, or at least in my case, going to do something else, and we changed to something we chose to do because we love to do it. And maybe a lot of you are like that. But the point is, it allows you to look at yourself and not just say, what do I have to do because somebody compels me to do it, but what do I want to do? And what can I do? And be creative about it. It's a wonderful thing, and that is a blessing in itself. And I believe it's something God is teaching us, and I'm going to look at a passage in just a moment that really teaches us that. When we come to our weakness, having said all of that, when we come to the idea of our weaknesses, though, there are a lot of things that affect that. There are a lot of things that detract from that. Negative distractions, detractions from being able to operate at peak performance and gain all the value from work we could gain. Let me start off by saying this, and and I'll dig a little bit deeper, not very deep tonight, but a little bit. Weakness, I believe, is fostered. In the case that we're talking about tonight, and in many areas of our life, it's fostered. Now, notice I'm choosing that very carefully. Because it doesn't have to come, but yet it does come. So it's fostered by a lot of pressures, a lot of environments, situations, circumstances that we either find ourselves in, put ourselves in, or somebody else put us in. And it hampers what we could do. We feel compelled, if we are, you know, a normal thinking human being, I believe we feel compelled to operate at peak performance. If you care about what you're doing, or you care about being productive, you want to do the best you can do. Um, You know, sometimes I may spend twice the amount of time on preparing a sermon, like this morning's sermon. I spent a lot of time. And it was the kind of thing where when I started out, I figured, you know, just honestly speaking, I've preached this passage before and I'll throw it down there and, you know, it won't take all that long. And I ended up spending, I don't know, between two and three amount, two and three times the amount of time that I would have spent on it. It's because you want to do a good job. You want to do the best you can do because you have some, if you'll pardon the expression, you have some pride about it. You don't want to just get up and do a lousy job. I mean, you may do that. And there are times, you know, I go home after preaching a sermon and say, boy, that was not good, you know. But you don't want to. 
And yet, even though we're, we, we want to operate at peak performance, we feel compelled to. The truth is, we don't get the most out of our abilities at all times. We want to, but we don't. It's an admirable goal to say, I want to operate at peak performance all the time. And some people get really down on them, themselves for every flaw, every mistake, every goof, every everything. But that's not practical. I mean, the truth is, even if we looked at a, at a machine that is, I mean, about as perfect as man can build. Remember, we're built by God. But about as perfect a machine as man can build that operates at peak performance, it can't always do that. It will run out of steam, so to speak. It will have problems. It will have down times. So will we. And if I'm the kind of person that beats myself up because every single time I didn't do the best I could do, I can tend to be one of those people. You know, I used to record, now we record my sermon. I used to record way back when some of you will remember this, I was recording on a great big reel-to-reel recorder. And I was going home and listening to that sermon and cringing every other word, like, whoa, that southern pronunciation, or wow, you blew it right there, or whatever. Part of that was to get better. Part of that was because I was so hypercritical, I wanted to be perfect every single time. You can't. And one of the things that you have to understand is that if, if you are going to set about not just trying to be critical of yourself so you get better, but critical of yourself beating yourself up, as I like to differentiate the two. If you're going to beat yourself up, then it's going to just pull you further down. And that's not what we want. We want to be people that get better and better at doing what it is God wants us to do and we want to do. We want to, and I'll use the the phrase, find our place... And we want to do the best job we can at it. And so, when we began to consider the things that draw us down, let's mention them, even though I won't go deep into them, but let's mention them. I mean, there's the whole idea in America, to start with, of success. And success is measured in different ways. Some people measure it strictly by the amount of money. If we're talking about an athlete, you know, I, I cannot hardly stand to hear the greatness of an athlete talked about in terms of how many millions of dollars he makes. Because what is that? Someone may decide, and I, I know, and I follow sports long enough to know, that people make mistakes all the time and way overpay certain athletes. Give them contracts they should have never been given for way more money. It's not the amount of money. But if we measure success like that, maybe we're not an athlete on some pro team, but maybe we're a person doing a job somewhere and we make X amount of dollars a year. Maybe we even get in a conversation with people. And, you know, people are like that. You sit around a table with a group of people, someone may just come right out and say, how much do you make a year? I'm inclined to say, what business is it of yours, you know? But, I mean, it's the idea of measuring success. You've either made it in life or you haven't made it in life based on how many numbers of dollars you make in a year. People measure success. And there's this whole idea. Sometimes people call it corporate America. Sometimes people call it living the American dream. But there's all this terminology for the idea of success. And the question is, how do we really measure success? I mean, what you have is this pressure to perform. Call it peak performance if you want to. 
Perform at a level where you are able to make more and more and more and more dollars, but at what cost? At what sacrifice? If an individual performs at at work, but loses his family, perhaps he loses his health. Perhaps he gets to the, the point, in the last few years, we have seen some of the most successful music stars reach an age of 50 and above who could not any longer perform at the athletic level that they once could, so they stop part they start popping pills to the point that it kills them. Still trying to do what they did in their twenties. Well, I'm in my fifties, and there just ain't no way you can do what you could do in your twenties. No way. And if I'm going to pop pills and drink and do all those things to try to comfort myself, still pushing for that peak performance, something's wrong. But you see, the idea is perform, 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 and perform at a level that even if you have to sacrifice your health, your family, your children, even your God. And we need to back up and say, how do I measure success? Do I measure it as other people measure it? Do I measure it like the Lord measures it? Do I measure it how I would measure it, considering the Lord? Operating at peak performance, maybe. The idea of doing the best job you can do while maintaining your health, your spiritual welfare, your family's health, etc. I look at that individual that's able to provide for his family and do it well. But provide for his family that's raising children in a home like it ought to be, that is serving Jesus Christ as he or she she should be serving. I look at that as real success. So when we're talking about the idea of our weakness, there are a lot of things that can pressure us, a lot of things that can affect us, a lot of hindrances, a lot of distractions, a lot of detractions, as I say. But I want to come back to this idea of doing it as the Lord would have me to do it. And I'd like for you to turn with me to a passage that I'm going to spend the rest of time on. Look at Matthew chapter 25. Because this is where we come to. And we did last year when we were talking about fulfilling our purpose. But let me look at it more from the standpoint of weakness. I'd like you to read this, and I'm not going to read all of it, but we'll read a few verses here. Now, you know the parable. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, and he has just talked about the ten virgins. Five of them were ready when he comes back. Five of them were not. So he's talking about being prepared. And then he says in verse 14, The kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country. I've already told you many times I believe that is him. Traveling into a far country, who called his own servants, I believe that to be Christians, and delivered unto them his goods, and that is everything that he has. And unto one he gave five talents, which is a piece of money, which represents an opportunity. But he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each one according to his individual ability. So in other words, a person has been given opportunity based on his ability. That's fair. And then immediately he took his journey. Now the reckoning comes, beginning in verse 16. The one that had received the five talents, he went and traded with some, and he made another five talents. And the one that likewise had received two, well, he did the same. But he that had received one, verse 18, he went and digged in the earth, and he hid it. He buried his Lord's talent. And after a long time, we don't know how long that is, but Jesus will come back. After a long time, the Lord of those servants comes and reckons 
This is he accounts. Those of you that are in accounting, we have some in the audience tonight. This is the idea of accounting. He reckons, he accounts with his servants. Now, in verse 20 beginning, so he that had received five talents, in other words, the most opportunity, he came and brought an additional five talents, and he said, Lord, you delivered to me five. Behold, I've gained besides five more. I doubled it. Lord said unto him, Well done, you good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He also that had received two talents basically came to, said to the Lord the same thing. You gave me two. I give you two more besides. He said, Well done, verse 23, good and faithful servant. I make you ruler over, over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And then came the guy with one. He which had received the one talent came and he said, Lord, now notice, here's a guy in his weakness. And before we're ready to jump all over this dude, let's see if, and I I know it sounds like me, so let's see if it sounds like any of us. In verse 24, he came to the guy with one talent, and, and the guy with one talent said, Lord, I knew that you are a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not strode, or sowed, we would say, sown. Now, is that true? Is Jesus hard? Well, a person would say, no, Jesus is not hard. And where many people are today, it would be the idea of Jesus is not hard at all. He'll accept anything. You just do whatever it is you do, whatever you want to do. Don't worry about it because we'll talk about things like grace and mercy and all of that. You know, God loves me. He understands me. He's not hard. You won't find that in this passage. He said, I knew you were hard. Now, verse 25. Another weakness here. And, and, of course, believing that Jesus is hard can be a weakness. It can be a great motivation. I need to do the best I can do because Jesus is a hard, reckoning master. But then there's the fear. I was afraid, verse 25. I don't know if fear has ever held you back, but I know it has me. Afraid. Afraid to do. Afraid to perform. Afraid to try. Afraid to go somewhere. Afraid to say something. Afraid. I was afraid, the guy said. That's fair. It's human to be afraid. And so what he says to Jesus in verse 25 is, I was afraid and I went and hid your talent. You gave me the opportunity. I didn't ask for it, is the point. As if to say to Jesus, you forced this thing on me. It's kind of like a person who would say... At the height of this, you know, God, I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask for it. I didn't want to be born. Nobody came to me and showed me earth and said, Michael, you want to go down there and live for X number of years and go through all of this and then I'll deal with you at the end of your life. Nobody asked me. And there are people out there that will tell you that. God has no right to send me to hell. I believe in God and I believe in hell. But He has no right to send me there because I didn't ask for life. I think that's what the servant is saying to him. You're hard and you gave this to me and I didn't ask for it. And I was afraid. And what I did is I went and I hid it in the earth. I buried it. I protected it. We would say today, I sat on it. I didn't lose it. It was always there so I could give it back to you. And of course you know the end of the story. Jesus said, bind him. 
is wicked, is slothful, lazy, cast him out. Now when I look at this passage, I consider God telling me I want you to perform at peak performance. Do I need to be afraid? Do I need to think in terms of Jesus is hard, man. When He comes back on Day of Judgment, He's going to look at me and He's a hard master. And you can't please Him. Do I need to look at it like that? I don't think so. I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here. And in fact, if you'll notice, the reason that I don't believe that is that there is so much choice. Notice in this passage what Jesus said to him. I buried it, verse 25. His Lord said, You're wicked and you're lazy. You know I reap where I don't sow. You know I gather where I've not planted, is the idea. You ought, therefore, verse 27, to have put my money to the exchangers and at least made some interest, to paraphrase. Now, when I look at that, here's what I think. What Jesus is saying is not that I expect. You will always be able to perform at peak performance. If I go back to the five-talent guy, the two-talent guy, they doubled it, they did great. It's kind of like the person that is given ability, and man, they just perform. I mean, everything they touch, it seems like, turns out right. And then there's the other guy, (laughs) it seems like no matter what he does. But you know, Jesus is not saying, if you don't grind out the best, Nowhere in this did we hear Jesus say, if you don't double my money, you go to hell. We don't hear that. And in fact, when he comes to the guy with the one talent, and the guy says, you're hard, and I was scared, he doesn't say to the guy, you should have doubled it. He doesn't say that. He says, you should have at least put it out and earned some interest. Now, in the grand scheme of things, there are a lot of ways in our country to make money, and I can't think of very many that take less effort than earning a little interest. Because Jesus doesn't even tell you how much interest. I mean, you can go stick it in the bank. I wouldn't advise it in today's terms, but you can stick it in the bank and make some interest. Jesus is not saying, I expect you to be able to operate at the same level of performance as the guys who do it the best. He's saying, I expect you to do something. I expect you to look at yourself, go back to what it says in the the beginning, and to recognize, I may not have the ability somebody else has, and so I can't do the job somebody else does. That's okay. I have some ability. I can look down inside me and ask the question and be honest about it and fair about it and quit beating myself up and quit saying it's my background, it's my circumstances, it's the color of my skin, it's where my parents came from, it's what I believed when I was growing up. Stop saying all of that and say God gave me ability. And if God gave me ability, He gives me opportunities. And if I got the opportunity, it means I've got the ability. Do something. And if I'm willing to do something, there's a place for me. There's something I can do. There's something I'm supposed to do. And I can do the best job I can do at it. Maybe I am filled with fear that's got to be overcome. You know, the way you start overcoming fear is do something. How many times have I stood up here and said I was a coward and I got beat up and I got bullied 
And one day I decided to do something, so I hit back and I got beat up mercilessly. But it was the start. It was the start of saying, no more running, no more laying down, no more being filled with fear, no more giving in to this. You've got to do something. If that means, you know, get up off the chair, go down the street, put some money in the bank and start earning some interest, you've got to do something. That's the point. Jesus is saying, do something. You have ability, I give you the opportunity, do something. The passage that we just read for us, let's go back to it in Ecclesiastes 9. I love this passage. I'm told by a lot of people I use it wrong, so if you know, if you believe I use it wrong, that's okay. <laughs> but I think there's a principle here, especially in verse 4. So let's start reading there. To him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. To me, in this passage, one of the things that it's saying is when you're dead, that's it. No more opportunity. You can't do anything. If, you, if you're going to put off, someday I'll do this, and someday I'll do that, and someday I'll, you know, if you're going to do that till the day you die, then that's going to be the end of the someday. You can't do anything after you're dead. But what he's saying is this to me in this passage. You may look at a lion as the king of the jungle, the great, glorious lion. And you may look at a dog as just that, just a mangy old dog. And you may look at yourself and you may say, I'm not the lion. I'm not the champion of all the beasts of the earth. I'm not the greatest, the fastest, the smartest, the ones that people tell us sometimes and we feel. If I'm not the best, I'm not the, the, the fastest, if I'm not the smartest, I'm not the most talented, then I can't do anything. No, if you're a dog and you're alive, you can do something. You may not do what a lion does. You may not have that ability. You may not be able to roar as loud or be the king of the, of the jungle, but you can do something. Now we go on in verse 5. The living know that they will die. The dead don't know anything, at least as far as this earth is concerned. And then he goes on to say, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And I believe he means on this earth. Your time of doing and performing at peak level or any other is over. Also their love, verse 6, and their hatred and their envy, all has perished. And neither have they any more, he says, a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Life is over. So that's when he goes on, I believe, the part that Everton read for us to say, so go your way. Do the best you can do. Be a dog. If you're a dog, be a dog. But do the best job a dog can do. Do your best. Eat, drink, enjoy life. Do the best you can do because this is the time you have. You can waste it like the guy that was given one talent. You can be afraid the rest of your life to do something. And if you are, you'll be afraid. And that's what your life will sum up to be. Or you can do something. If you fail, that's okay. That's not even the point there. It's just do something. Don't be afraid. Don't look at it like you can't. We have a lot of choice here in this life. A lot of choice. But it doesn't always make it easy just because we have choice. In fact, some people will say it makes it a lot harder. Because at least if I had somebody standing over me saying, you know, you go do this job in this field or whatever, or you die. Well, you know, that's pretty simple. 
But no, in this country, in this, in, in our society, I have all of these pressures that I feel, all of these things motivating me, all of these voices that are speaking to me at once, and I've got to reach down inside and I've got to find what it is I'm supposed to do. A lot of choice, yes. But choice just means more responsibility. And yet if I simplify that, and I'd like you to look with me at a passage in Colossians 3, because I think it applies. I realize it was written to slaves in the first century, but it applies. Look at Colossians 3 down in verse 23. Let's simplify it. Get rid of all the extraneous noise here. And whatever you do, do it honorably or heartily here as to the Lord and not unto men. Just kind of add Ephesians 6 to it. But do it with all your heart. Do it single-mindedly. Do it because you know it is what you're supposed to do. You're saying to yourself, I don't want to hear all the voices out there. All the voices that are challenging me and telling me and all the voices that are saying to me, if you don't do this and you don't do that, you're not successful. I'm tired of listening to all of that. And I just want to hear what God says. What does God say? Go do something. Find something that you can do and do it. Go do something and I'll bless it. And if you do it with all your heart and you do it for me and to me, I'll bless it. That won't mean you won't change and do something else at a later time. But do whatever it is you have to do, do it with all your heart. We have those talents. We have that ability. Jesus calls all his servants to it. Notice that in that passage. To every single one of them, he gives opportunity based on ability. Nobody's left out. There isn't a single person that can honestly say, I can't do anything. Not a single person responsible to Jesus can say that. Because you have ability. Jesus has said so. Let me leave you with one final passage, one that I find a lot of comfort in myself. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 13. In Hebrews 13, this is what the writer says in verse 5. And I believe it applies to all manner of life, every part of life, job, everything else. Let your conversation, your way of life, your manner of life, be without covetousness. Now let me quickly apply that here. Covetousness comes in all forms. Sometimes covetousness comes in the form of looking at someone else who is doing what you consider to be a better job than you're able to do. And saying about that, if I can't do that, I want that. And if I can't do that, I won't do anything. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. And that can be abilities as well as monetary value or, you know, your assets. Be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And you know that applies even to my work. If I do the best I can do, and I do it for him more than anything else, he will never leave me. He will always bless me. You can't beat that. That's peak performance. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, that He is the Son of God, and you'll confess your belief in Him, be willing to change your life, live your life for Jesus in every respect. Tonight you'll be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. He will wash your sins away. You will be a child of God. 
Maybe you're here and you look at your life and you say, I, I need to start over. I just kind of need to rededicate myself to doing what the Lord wants me to do. If you're here and you need to come, please come while Greg leads. Here's the-